0: Hi, I'm J.G. McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Cozer, And we host Talking Who
1: to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who.
0: Each week, we look
2: at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't.
1: We're
0: looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures. And we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts.
3: So give us a listen. And remember, keep talking Who. They
2: all say Who. Hello, I am
3: Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the pinnacle American editions for all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the
2: Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard podcast we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know one person's trash is another's treasure or something like that. Each episode hosts Eric Golbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening
0: hi this is sylvester mccoy and i play doctor who number seven on doctor who well yeah i could play doctor who number seven on something else anyway you're listening to a rambling doctor who for the doctor who target book club
2: podcast enjoy your travels with a book (laughs)
3: Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the hellish task of discussing in-story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because, you know, we're in hell in this particular book. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have a not-at-all-hellish three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, and <laughs> that would be me there's our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes and has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes hello Dalton hello hello and finally we have our semi-novice fan one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried hello Alison good evening If you like what you're hearing, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetpc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've opened a portal to a hellish dimension to store them all. (laughs) <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Deep Breath, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Jay Berry The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you all.
2: Thank you. Thanks, y'all. We also
3: have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com y7k in fact we expect you to we now bring you another installment of technically target with a book which is not a target book and a novelization of a story that was never filmed not in our universe anyway and that is tom baker's scratch man without further ado here are some fast facts Doctor Who Scratchman, adapted by Tom Baker and James Goss, from the unfilmed movie script by Tom Baker, Ian Marder, and James Hill, published by BBC Books in January 2019. As of this recording in January of 2021, this title is currently in print and available as an unabridged audiobook, 295 pages. Now, Alison, before we started recording, you had a question for me, and I wondered if you would ask it during the recording, so we can explain it to everybody once the ambulance passes by. <laughs> it
0: was what's going on here? So so Target Book Club, but there are, in my mind, almost an infinite number of Doctor Who novels beyond the novelizations of filmed episodes. And I knew that this was not one of them and also not published by Target. And I became afraid. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that, 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 that this was quite the Sisyphean task, <laughs> that, that we would never be finished if we were going to go through all novels in story order, including stories that have been inserted between episodes. But we've done at least three of those before. Yeah. So I was wondering, what are the parameters now of what we are, which additional novels are we reading?
3: Yes. And I don't think I've ever fully explained exactly what the technically target designation actually is so i'll do that now you're absolutely right it is called the doctor who target book club podcast so we are going to be reading all of the books published under the target imprint that includes that last barry let's radio program which was indeed the last target novelization even though it was i believe printed by virgin publishing because they had taken over the imprint by that point We included The Missing Adventure, Ghosts of End space specifically because we had already done The Paradise of Death. It made no sense to do one and not the other, so that's why I included that one. Target also did novelizations of a radio play that was produced in 1985. It published the... Companions series. We've got a a book with Turlow, who you haven't met yet, and we've got the aforementioned Harry Sullivan's War. Those were printed under the Target imprint, so we're going to do those. We also are going to do a set of books called The Missing Episodes, and I don't want to explain the circumstances of these ahead of time. Let's just say there's a set of three books that are novelizations of episodes that were planned to have been made but were not. And those were printed under the Target imprint. And then finally, we get to all of the novelizations that have been printed in the last couple of decades that were actually printed by BBC Books, but are considered Target novelizations because they're formatted like Target novelizations. And, of course, the books that are printed by BBC Books that are novelizations of stories that were just never printed by Target. So whenever we get to those, those are going to be considered technically Target because they are not under the Target imprint. Does that make sense?
0: So if I understand correctly, these are... (laughs) Dalton is wise, yes. <laughs> and then he, he backs away slowly uh, from, from, the, from the fount of knowledge. I, on the other hand, am a fool. Uh, so if I understand correctly, almost all of these are within the parameters of there was a script that existed in the same era, give or take two, three years, of where the story is set between actual filmed episodes.
3: Yeah, In fact, with only a couple of exceptions, that's exactly what's going to be the case. And I'm only thinking of those two original novels that were done under the Target imprint, too. Yeah, there were no scripts for those, but you're right. This had a script attached to it, and it almost got made. Those three missing episodes that we'll be doing later on had scripts attached to them, almost got made. Those actually were printed under the Target imprint.
0: So if this had been made, it would have been made approximately what year?
3: That's a good question.
0: Like, would it have been a flashback movie?
3: Well, here's the thing. Let me go into the background for you, because that might explain it. In fact, I need to talk about why this was made to begin with, or why it almost happened. Imagine that you're a lead actor on a successful sci-fi TV show, and you're paired with two other fine actors, one of whom has a flair for writing. Imagine you have a lot of downtime on the set, and there are only so many times crossword puzzles you can do together.
0: (laughs) They only publish one a day.
3: Exactly. And they're pretty tough, so you get tired of them fairly quickly. Now imagine that you come up with a story idea for said show. You present it to the production team, who have more than enough on their plate at that moment, and you decide after being turned down by them that you will propose it as a feature film now imagine you're tom baker and what i'm describing to you happened over forty-four years ago with co-star ian martyr that's the background behind the unfilmed movie that this book is a loose novelization of which would have been called doctor who meets scratchman the script came very close to being produced once Baker and Martyr took the idea to BBC Enterprises, to the extent that director James Hill came on board to write the script and plan to direct it, and there was talk of having either Vincent Price or Peter Cushing, who played Doctor Who in the two movies from the 1960s, playing the title villain. Now, here's the thing. You asked if it would have been a flashback. It would have been produced a few years after both Martyr and Liz Sladen had left the series, so... We're talking roughly 77, 78. Alarmingly, since Liz Slade was no longer under contract by the time the movie would have been produced, there was talk of having Twiggy play Sarah Jane. Oh, wow. Twiggy, of (laughs) all people. Yeah. We assumed that Ian Martyr would come back because he co-wrote the script, so of course he wants to be part of it. But there were two problems that doomed the production. One was a lack of funding which landed Tom Baker in a bit of hot water when he suggested in an interview that the fans could crowdfund it, though he didn't use that word, obviously, and then had to send back all of the many donations he ended up getting. He got several thousand pounds from that, in fact. The other was that the BBC had granted only a very brief license period for the movie to be produced in, and by the time that period ended, the money had still not materialized. Let me see what I did there. (laughs) Anyway, fast forward several decades, and we have author James Goss, who had already written several Doctor Who novelizations of stories that were not novelized by Target when they aired, and we will be reading those as technically Target, in fact, in the next couple of years. He essentially ghost-wrote this book under Tom Baker's name in 2019. That's why we have several things in the book that were not in the original script, such as the references to the Sarah Jane adventures, which obviously didn't exist then. We have cameos by the 10th and 13th Doctors. We also have the Cybermen, who were actually not in the original because they couldn't get the rights to them. In the original script, they were the barely legally permissible cyborgs. (laughs) And just as obviously the original movie wouldn't have been told in first person by the Doctor himself, as this book is, making it one of the very few works that does. Now, those of you listening at home, if you happen to have a copy of Doctor Who magazine number 379 handy, it included an extended synopsis of the original story. And you might be surprised at how much was in the script, including the Scarecrows and the Pinball Machine showdown which feature Daleks, as it turns out, which pointedly do not appear here. And to address a controversy which may or may not be brewing over where I've placed this book, since people have asked me this, there are multiple hints in the story and the dialogue that place the events of the story after the novelization of the android invasion, but not after the televised version of that story, As we said last time, at the end of that story, we do have a final scene showing the Doctor and Sarah going back to the TARDIS without Harry in tow. It goes without saying that had the movie been made, fans would probably have gone out of their minds trying to make it fit into continuity. But since we're dealing solely with the books, it fits perfectly because, after all, we never saw Harry not get into the TARDIS (laughs) in that last book, did we?
0: For that matter, we never saw me not get into the TARDIS.
3: That's true, which means you could be in any of these books. Mm -hmm. And one last thing. This will not be the last time we see the Doctor on trial. And if anything keeps us from placing the story neatly into continuity, it's actually that framing story, not the fact that Harry is here. So yeah. I uh, hope that answered the questions around the production and why it didn't happen and all that, but the book obviously did.
0: So Tom Baker didn't participate in the actual novelization of this. He wrote the original story. So did he come up with the original story and then Ian Martyr wrote the original script?
3: It come it's something like that. They got they got script credits, but it was actually director James Hill who wrote the script from their idea their script treatment i think it's called when you come up with just a story idea martyr probably did the heavy lifting on the writing portion of the script treatment how much he had to do with the actual writing in the script however it's probably in that issue of doctor who magazine that i mentioned but as far as the writing of this book tom baker is aware of the story he read the unabridged audio of it which is just marvelous But as far as the actual type type typing, probably not, even though Tom Baker has written books and they are just delightful. (laughs) But they're not Doctor Who books. Speaking of which, we don't actually have a back cover for this one, but we do have what we would normally have on the back cover in the inside cover. And Dalton, I think you said you had Uh that nearby. So if you wouldn't mind reading that for us.
2: I will do it. The Doctor, Harry, and Sarah Jane Smith arrive in a quiet Scottish village, but their holiday is cut short by the appearance of strange creatures, living scarecrows who terrify the local population. The scarecrows are the work of the Sinister Scratchman, a cosmic force that enslaves planets and turns them into nightmare worlds, and he has set a series of traps for the Doctor to get inside the Time Lord's head. What is the Doctor most afraid of? If Scratchman can learn that, then no force in creation can stop him. The fate of the universe hangs in the balance, and the Doctor's worst nightmares are coming out to play. That's awesome, isn't it?
3: Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's an awesome read, too, (laughs) but yes. (laughs) So, first impressions uh Allison i'm going to start with you you um <laughs> you you told me what your first impression of this book was when you got it because listeners, they both have physical copies this time, not PDFs I sent them copies before Christmas. What was your first impression
0: a lovely cover, a beautiful red saturation u v raised lettering. Sorry, I was a graphic designer for a few years. So it's a terrific cover and a hardback seems to me like this almost unimaginable luxury when it's actually a new hardcover. So I started immediately wondering what I owe Tony Witt that he might come collecting (laughs) at some point. Um, You're here doing it. And then I was surprised it was Tom Baker. So this is why I was so curious about for the provenance of the story, because I thought it was an entirely new story. I didn't understand that it was a story that was composed over 40 years ago in, in some form because I'm not sure we have read anything here that's more recent than early 90s, right? The Barry Letts ones were early oh, 90s. And correct. this is a straight up like Brexit era novelization and yep. cameos by Jodie Whitaker. and a lot more of what Dalton's mentioned in the past of how The new Doctor is more psychological, whereas the original series is more sociological. And a lot of both of those elements in here. So I wasn't sure what to expect, but I wasn't expecting something that was such a lovely physical object. I wasn't expecting something that looked like more of a horror story. I wasn't expecting something by Tom Baker. And now that you've told me the history of it, this is the best assembled by committee camel that I've ever read. (laughs) 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 Because that pedigree sounds horrific. I mean, yeah. talk about, you know, too many cooks, you know, whatever the metaphor is for too many people being involved in something creative that's not not filmed. Of course, you always have a lot of people involved in something that's filmed. But um, mm. what, what a spectacular coming together of so many different writers and so many different settings for the for the show and then the times in which in, in which it's composed. Because I'm always nattering on about how, you know, all the stories are about imperialism or xenophobia and the Cold War and that sort of thing. Not all of them, but those elements are always present in these stories from the 60s and the 70s. And then this one is so modern, but then it does still have some of those 70s elements as well.
3: Absolutely, yeah. So
0: that's my initial uh, question to start the episode. My first impression was, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> what's this? What's
2: this? What's all this?
3: Dalton, was that your first impression as well?
2: Yeah, I... I Whenever it came in the mail, I remember opening it, and the visual of the book itself is very striking. Seeing that it's written by Tom Baker, I was like, what? A doctor writing writing a book that fits into the chronology of the series somehow? It just blew me away. I had never heard the term Scratchman being used for the devil, so I didn't quite know what to expect with that. To me, Scratchman kind of sounds like a jazz artist's uh, moniker you know a <laughs> lottery addict maybe yeah gambling yeah. problem um i'll so... win it for sure by god <laughs> yeah. uh, so other than just like the visual and the back is just this creepy as hell scarecrow and there's this uh, bit of a conversation between sarah and the doctor um which I'll, i'm going to read this too just because it, it kind of sets the tone really well we're not really here for a picnic, are we, Doctor? Asked Sarah. No, I agreed. Something's brought the TARDIS here. Something good? Something evil? She paused and sighed. It's going to be something evil, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that just that encapsulates... <laughs> their relationship to each other but also just puts me in such a weird limbo state of like god yeah is this like some sinister horrible thing that that is finally gonna like get them Mm -hmm. i know it's not going to i know they're gonna find a way out somehow but uh it it already raised the stakes really high
3: yeah and you're absolutely right about how that exchange captures the tenor of their interactions throughout the book, which is interesting because it's the tenor of their interactions in the stories we're reading right now, but not necessarily the way they interacted during the time that they were, were with Harry. So it more reflects this later fourth Doctor Sarah Jane Smith interaction yeah. towards the end of their time together.
2: And even, even the way they both kind of beat up on Harry a little bit, <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> it, it fits though. It, it works. And uh, it, it, it brings a, a, a lightness to uh, a book that has a lot of heaviness going on in it.
3: Yeah, it really does. And it definitely feels like they have picked Harry back up after dropping him off on earth. So it's got that that later feel to it, too, which is why I place it where I do that, and there are references directly in the book that you cannot ignore. At one point, the the Doctor turns to Harry and says, you know, with all these enemies we've been facing recently, and he specifically mentions androids, yeah. and they're like, uh-huh, yep, yep, it's gotta come after this. It absolutely does. It doesn't necessarily have to come directly after android invasion, but it's- perfectly fine that it does it doesn't come after a loch ness monster that's for damn sure <laughs> so what did we like about this there's probably quite a bit to talk about yeah
2: i don't even know where to start um
0: <laughs> i've got seven pages of notes
2: yeah i've got i've got four pages of of scribbles first obviously uh it's in first person mhm <laughs> that is such a such an unusual feeling to read from the perspective of the doctor yeah because usually we we get and and it's especially interesting given that tom baker is the one writing it right so it really feels like the doctor which is just and it's just incredible all the way all the way through um so yeah yeah
0: tony is your impression that goss did all of the this newer version or that baker participated some as well
3: i have not been able to track down any definitive answer to that and i wish i could in fact listeners if you know the answer to that i would be more than happy if you would let me know so i can let them know in the uh, you know two or three weeks it'll take to get back to you guys about it but uh, my impression is that goss did all the ghost writing and that baker probably read it and signed off on it. I do know that, obviously, Tom Baker did the unabridged reading of the book and actually adds a few flourishes throughout. I'm, I'm told that at one point he says, oh, and you'll like this bit before he starts a chapter, <laughs> and which is just lovely. And <laughs> so he's, if he didn't approve it, He certainly knew about it and I have a feeling that he absolutely approved it. And you're right, Dalton, that this just it gives it more a sense of authenticity of being within the doctor's head and are finally getting to know just what he thinks about his companions, even if he's showing them one emotion to their faces and feeling one that they can't see. Yeah. Which is just great. What else? well actually <laughs> let me guide you let me guide you a little bit yeah. and see if that helps the framing story. what did we think of the framing story, which is the time lords have put the doctor on trial, which is something they'll do again and again and again.
0: you know they get bored. the docket's clear. I'll bring in the doctor
3: <laughs> yes let's let's threaten the rest of his lives and Take him to task for this thing that almost destroyed the universe, but did not. That's what they seem to be trying him for. What did we think of the framing story as a way of uh, breaking up?
2: I I don't love it, and I don't hate it. Okay. I I understand its importance, and I I get what they were going for with it, but I almost feel like if it wasn't there, I would have been just as uh, happy reading the book. Hmm. That's fair. But it does, it does allow us to kind of explore the relationship of the Doctor to um, other members of his race, and it allows us to, to get to know the Doctor as well by, by the questions that he poses to them. Oh, yes. Yes.
3: And I I love some of those questions, especially when they say something along the lines of how ludicrous the story is and how Scratch Man couldn't have created an entire world just to give you a hard time. And the doctor says something about the, well, I know, right? An entire planet of people who mock me? The very idea. (laughs) And it shames them in the silence. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because we will be seeing the Time Lords fairly soon. I won't tell you exactly when, but we will be seeing them again fairly soon. This is not the way the Time Lords will act in that particular thing, though there is a trial, as it turns out. Goss is doing something interesting with the Time Lords, I think, here, because he's creating a version of the Time Lords we've never had before, and he's doing exactly that, showing... If the question of the book is, what is the Doctor afraid of, then you have to explore the question, what are Time Lords afraid of? Because mm-hmm. that's what he is, but he's an unusual Time Lord. He's got fears that are very unique to him. And I think that's the whole reason why that framing story is there. It does tend to break the book up Some uh, the, the the point is to break the book up sometimes. Yeah. Some of the breaks are better than others. I, for instance, love the moment when the Time Lords are so into the story that they're concerned about what happens to Sarah Jane and to Harry, uh-huh. and they say, well, you didn't, you couldn't, you couldn't just let him take them, could you?" And it's like, "Oh, you actually care. Well, that's nice."
2: <laughs> yeah, it, in in ways, it kind of shows that if given the chance, the the rest of the Time Lords may act the same way the Doctor does. You know, if if they just get out of their heads and get out of their routine and off their high horse. um, And off their planet. (laughs) And off their, yeah, you know, get get out and, you know, live a little.
3: (laughs) Yeah. He does at one point say that Time Lords don't do eccentricity. It's why so many of us leave the planet. (laughs)
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) I loved it. Oh, yeah.
1: good. <laughs> yeah, the I
0: thought story? it was magnificent in, uh, well, there, there are a lot of different things going on in this book. But at first, I thought it was just very funny with, you know, very starting with the intro, uh, you know, he's going to say he saved, saved the universe again. And we saw the Junior Archivist again. Where do we see the Junior Archivist previously?
3: Uh, oh, um, Doomsday Weapon.
0: Wow, that was a really, really quick accessing of the files.
3: Well, it's mainly because he mentions the events of the Doomsday Weapon when he says, you know, (laughs) you say you don't interfere, and you you sent me to that chalk pit of a planet. And literally, it's a chalk pit because it's a rock quarry. You sent me to that chalk pit of a planet to get those plans back from the Master, but the rest of the time, you couldn't care less about the universe. So there's a direct reference to Doomsday Weapon there, which is why I think we get the Junior Archivist
0: so this read to me like someone who has spent uh, somewhere between 20 and 40 years thinking about the doctor and thinking about what is significant about popular fiction these legacy properties where you have dozens of different writers who collaborate a few at a time and then over decades and go back and forth between regurgitation and finding the classic themes. And I thought it was the fanfic of a lifetime in a lot of ways, not fanfic <laughs> in, a lot of, uh, in, in an insulting way, but I thought it was a terrific meditation on this doctor and where this doctor fits with the other doctors and what's resonant about the story. And so I, I think I've started of living vicariously through Goss here, thinking about how this is exactly the kind of book, I, the kind of X-Men or Star Trek or Doctor Who book I would want to write, where you're dealing with these, meta issues and have this great meta structure on it, but it's not just all navel gazing about the experience of the writer. It's actually in context of the story. I'm, I, I'm saying it badly and kind of sputtering, but I thought it was, I thought it pulled off of me. It's very challenging to pull off, to, to deal with all of these overarching issues and then, and meta issues at the same time in a way that doesn't just sort of dissolve into something saccharine at the end
3: yeah he actually mentions something like that at one point, doesn't he? He says something about properties being run into the ground yes uh-huh. <laughs> and it 's like oh <laughs> you're talking about the endless extended universe of Doctor Who, of which this book actually fits but yeah it's a it's a good meditation on how exactly the fourth doctor fits into. The timeline of doctors, especially when we get those nightmarish versions of the first three doctors who are meant to be torture devices for him, and yet they act so much like themselves (laughs) that they end up being helpful, (laughs) and they're very distinct, especially how... Sarah's reaction to the uh, scarecrow version of the third doctor. And the doctor says something like, She told me later she realized how fond she'd been of the prissy thing.
2: Yes. I love him <laughs> being yes. described as prissy. <laughs> yes. This book is
0: not a big fan of the third doctor. They also imply that he is a poor tipper. Yes. Yes. yes.
3: He's a poor tipper and he should have been punched more often.
1: Yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's lovely. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that's probably why we get the thirteenth doctor in it too. Because we need that in fact, I hate to jump ahead all the way to the end of the book, but what did we think of that resolution where the Doctor actually has a conversation with the Jody Whitaker Doctor? It's the
2: epilogue. I think that's like the one part of the book that I got a little bit confused with. Okay. Why? Well, um, I just—I don't know. My my brain just hit like a wall, and I was like, I just—I mm-hmm. don't know. Something something about it made my brain just—I I couldn't quite figure out what was happening.
3: Oh, that she's somehow in Scratchman's realm to help her previous self out, and then she comes back to discuss it with him at the end of the book. Uh,
2: well, and and honestly, whenever I was reading it, since the story was about the devil. I didn't even pick up that she was the doctor. I thought that this was an incarnation of an angel or God um, or some being like that, which is amazing and funny given that, uh, you know, people have described the doctor as such. So, yeah. Now that I'm going back and looking at it, I'm like, yeah, duh, Dalton. Of course, that's the 13th Doctor.
0: <laughs> I would actually have missed it if they hadn't talked about the rainbow shirt, because I haven't actually seen any of the Jodie Whittaker episodes.
3: That's right. you haven't. So
0: I it was it was clear enough. That I knew who that that was who he ran into in hell and uh, or the other dimension. And at the end, my impression was it would be very meaningful if I had actually seen more of her episodes and had a better idea of how she plays the doctor. But I haven't.
3: Yeah, I will say this. I, I think Dalton, I may have shown you the first Oded Whitaker stories at some point.
2: Oh, I've I've seen them. I just you have it. Just uh, it, it totally missed me. And now that I'm go- I'm actually sitting here reading back over it, and I'm like, yeah, how did I miss that?
3: <laughs> and and you probably would agree with me. And this will help allison out that james goss really captures her voice beautifully it it is totally her i believe
0: that because uh it was very easy to imagine even though i i I don't know her voice
3: Mm -hmm. oh yeah well as soon as they say that she had that jodie whittaker uses her actual native-born accent for it And it's a very distinct regional accent. And that was my first tip off that, and I kind of knew ahead of time what to look for. The Tenth Doctor's appearance is much more fleeting. But then the Tenth Doctor's appearance is there for a very specific reason, I think.
0: And I missed it entirely.
3: It's when he's in hell, and he's in the castle, and he goes into the party where everybody is ignoring him. It's one of the three tortures that the Fourth Doctor goes through before he meets Scratchman. And he's in the party where everyone's ignoring him. He calls out to Sarah and Harry, thinking that they're there. The Tenth Doctor strides in and says something along the lines of Alonzi. He doesn't actually say Alonzi, but he's there, I believe, to remind the Doctor that when you're gone, even though you have an, you are enjoying being this Doctor, there will be others. In fact, he specifically references a conversation that he has with Sarah when we get to the chapter where he's telling the Time Lords why it is that they actually fear death. And he says, Sarah once asked me, why would I fear death if I'm going to just come back as a completely different person? And I told her it's the coming back as a completely different person bit that gets me. And that's something that the new series has explored with The Twelfth Doctor's final story, that the First Doctor doesn't want to regenerate, the Twelfth Doctor doesn't want to regenerate, because they want to stay themselves. Even the Tenth Doctor's last line is, I don't want to go. If you're the Doctor, as the actor, and also as the Doctor, you want to stay in that incarnation, because it's been so much fun being you. And imagine the amount of fun you'd have being the Fourth Doctor, especially when you're at the very beginning of it. Which is something else he makes reference to. So, yeah. So when that Tenth Doctor comes in, he's reminded, oh, there will be another Doctor, and there will be another Doctor just as fun as I am. I know, blasphemy, but I honestly believe David Tennant comes close to being as fun a Doctor as the Fourth Doctor ever. And then we get the Thirteenth Doctor, who's pretty much at the start of her time, too, saying, ah, can I help ya? (laughs) And it's (laughs) tremendous and great. What? else do we like there are two stories here really there's the the story on the island scottish island with the scarecrows which is terrifying enough and then we get hell
0: and i did not see that coming i didn't realize that there was going to be a book to a book one and a book two. Oh
3: yeah yeah and i think it's lovely i think it's lovely the way that works i don't know how it would have worked in, on film because <laughs> that that strikes me as a very long movie, if they had done everything. But let's break it up that way. What did you think of book one, The Long Night?
2: Super eerie. Totally get the feel of this island forgotten in time. And honestly, I don't even know what time this is supposed to be yet. That Scottish island, I think, is...
0: No, she points out it's nowhere near Scotland, that his geography is terrible.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> but as someone not from Earth, it's pretty close. <laughs>
3: Right. (laughs) And yeah, the doctor always has trouble with that. I thought I had it, but I thought it was the 1920s. I'm probably wrong about that. No, I thought they said
0: it was 1964 at one point.
3: Did they? they? I
0: thought thought that was the actual year that was given. I could be wrong.
3: Mm. It may very well have been. I know that when Harry goes back to Mavis's shop, he actually picks up a copy of the... Boy's Life. Boy's Boy's Life. And that's a reference to the Mind Robber, because you remember that Mm -hmm. um, he's been plucked out of time and he was writing this continuous boy's adventure for ages and ages and ages, and apparently Harry's read it. But uh, yeah, that's why I was thinking 30s. Uh,
2: Yeah, just even even if we did get a a time for it, this, this place feels very forgotten and kind of removed. And even if it was, you know... 2015 it was still just this little fishing village on this little island in the middle of nowhere
0: I like that it's not romanticized as a place that time forgot but it's more like an actual modern place that time forgot where there's really not a lot of work most of the people there are older because there's not work for younger people, things are kind of run down, things are kind of dying not that it's horribly depressing but it's not Brigadoon (laughs) it's not charming
3: yeah no not at all (laughs) especially when you have somebody like Mavis Tullock which I think is one of the most beautifully formed unlikable characters that we've ever had in a Doctor Who story she's such a wonderful villain without being a a true villain (laughs) yeah just totally a bitch. She's just <laughs> everything that you would hate to have in a small community. You would hate to have this domineering old widow who runs the local store and doesn't give anybody credit and thinks everybody is less strong than she is. Yeah, and, and
2: just total gossip and ruling people through that, that social connection and spinning tails.
3: <laughs> yeah. And completely unearned force of personality. And when she finally gets her comeuppance, I I think it's one of the most satisfying parts of the book. I mean, we don't want anybody in these books to die necessarily. But when she does, (laughs) I I rather enjoyed it.
0: I didn't understand what actually happened to her. Is she the only person who's actually eaten on the island? Because we have this reference where the the doctor's theory is that they're making the bone and blood meal feed out of people, but we don't ever actually see them do it unless that happens to her. I wasn't sure.
3: I think she was turned into a tree (laughs) Uh because he does make some reference to some solitary tree in the middle of town. Yes, but
0: that's what confused me because no one else turns into a tree. They turn into a scarecrow or maybe are eaten, although we're never told if his theory is correct or not.
3: Well, remember by that point, whatever this nanotechnology or virus is is transforming them using the materials that are near to hand and it's evolving as it goes.
0: Yes, and they're becoming what is it, sort of, they're being made out of better scrap. Yeah. It seemed like. Like at first they're made out of like all rusted out tools and then we're told they're made out of, you know it sounds like maybe some relatively high end furniture that's been broken down, but still scrap material, I thought was interesting.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Which is why I guess that's how Scratchman sells it to the Cyberman and says, Hey, if you help me I will give you a way to cyber-convert everybody on the planet very quickly. It's like, that's terrifying.
0: Gotcha. Was the yeah. policeman in the village also the ferryman or the taxi driver? Oh. Because we're told about the, the police bicycle scarecrow. Yeah, and then the taxi driver, who is I never haven't remember how to pronounce it. Sharon. Sharon, talks about how you know he was a policeman a long time ago and had a had a first rate bicycle. Oh, and I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be the same person or not.
3: Oh my God, it probably was. Uh-huh. But That's then interesting.
0: He didn't die that well, actually, we don't know how long ago he died.
3: yeah. he if we never saw him die, so he could have been there for some time uh, being ferryman, but then he's also the ferryman, the the ferryman of legend, but he happens to be driving a taxi doing it. yeah.
0: well, okay, so we have different states of being here. We have the villagers in their original human state. and then all of the villagers, except for Mavis, become scarecrows. The Scarecrows don't remember who they are when they're on the island, except for this lovely scene where, where Joanna remembers who she is at the very end. But yet there's another version of them and the other dimension at the same time.
3: Something like that, I think.
0: Like, are there two versions? Like, the villagers who are alive in the church all become scarecrows, but then we see them in the other dimension. Are there two copies of them, or did they physically go there in a way that the other scarecrows did not? Because these villagers remember themselves, and the ones who died before didn't.
3: They remember themselves specifically because they've been manifested by Scratchman to torture the doctor because he was unable to save them.
0: Okay, Mm. gotcha.
3: Yeah. Yeah, when, when he had to watch them being converted, they had no way of remembering themselves because they essentially do die when they become scarecrows. The only one, as you pointed out, who does remember briefly who she is is the one that's chasing Sarah all over the TARDIS and finally remembers before she dies who she is.
0: I was trying to remember I was trying to understand what the difference is in the other dimension between the dead and the nightmares or if the dead basically slowly become the nightmares. Because I don't think they're implying that the three doctors are in any sense the actual three dead doctors. They aren't. They're just the nightmares. But then some of the nightmares, like the insect nightmares, definitely used to be individuals. Yes. And then, oh, what's that lovely line about, you know, once all of my dreams and my nightmares were exhausted, I slowly became this.
3: Yeah, and I think what's happening when we see the villagers coming back and then later sacrificing themselves to the other manifestations, those are all attempts by Scratchman to find out what the Doctor fears and to try to destroy him with all of it, or to destroy Sarah and Harry by that point. Because if you carefully parse the descriptions of the creatures that are manifested— They're all monsters that the Doctor has faced before. We get a description of, well, the giant maggots, obviously, then the giant robot. We also get a description of crotons. Mm -hmm. We get a description of Daleks and giant spiders. We get all the things that the Doctor has feared in his past, all those enemies that he says that you acquire like books, that one day you look around and you say, golly, I have a lot of books.
0: But the Cyberman is an actual deceased Cyberman who's being tormented by having to do good deeds. Yes. yes. So, but, the, but the enemies are, are you know, the, the nightmares who are manifest are indicated to be manufactured from his fears. Are they other dead things that are sort of performing or taking on the form of his fears?
3: I believe they might be. It's really hard to say. And I think that's the one part of this book that doesn't quite gel properly. If we were to say it has any flaws, it's that... There's a bit of, I know we're talking weirdly about internal logic when it comes to you know how to describe hell, <laughs> but there's a lack of internal logic going on there that if you look at it too closely, it's like um yeah, But isn't that true of almost every Doctor Who story? Yeah. Well,
0: and I'm asking this genuinely because some things that seem kind of sketchy like this were actually were very forthrightly uh, answered, like are Harry and Sarah dead? No, they are definitely not dead. Exactly. So, some of this I'm not asking in a cynical way, I shouldn't always understand, because the Doctor is not successfully tempted and seduced. Right. Were the villagers tempted and seduced?
3: No. No. The villagers were transformed in scarecrows in our world, and after the virus was dispersed in some way, they went to their final ends.
0: But everything else in the dimension was though right like don't we have this implication that they all go through that some form of that testing to extract their dreams and nightmares to be used Mm. thinking about what the uh the creature who scuttles out of the hatch says to uh says to harry
3: Yeah, yeah. And in a case like that, I think those creatures are probably formerly living beings who were tempted by Scratch Man and entered into some sort of pact and then became his denizens. That's not what happens to the villagers. The villagers, when we see them later, are specifically brought up to make the Doctor feel guilt over not saving them. The problem is, they happen to be such good manifestations of the people that they're manifestations of, that they might as well be those people, and they end up sacrificing themselves. In the same way that those three Doctors are meant to torture the Doctor, but they actually help. And when... (laughs) I love that part. When Harry is being... Tortured by manifestations of Sarah Jane teasing him. Yes, <laughs> and then the doctor, multiple doctors, saying how stupid he is. Harry manages to trick them into not only writing the castle but also breaking him out. And yeah, I I think it's that Scratchman is just not terribly good at what he does. Sometimes he doesn't realize, in fact, that's his downfall isn't it? Because he wants to know what the doctor's afraid of and it ends up coming after him and he can't stop it because he's made it too well. hmm uh-huh. That seems to be the the underlying current behind everything. He's done it just a little too well, and those manifestations are as good as the real thing, and in fact, in some ways, better. And he ends up being the victim of them.
0: Was it a kidnapped by a tribute act? I think <laughs> was one of the lines for the, <laughs> yes. the first three doctors.
2: Yes, yeah.
1: exactly.
2: My oh. uh, my understanding, kind of uh, of uh, the scratch man too, is that the dimension the universe that he is in he's basically eaten through everything that existed there he yes. he has uh, used all the fuel that he had at his disposal and that's mm. why he's looking to come to our dimension our universe because he doesn't have anything else to eat up exactly which take a number
0: in this in this season if we were doing it like in the actual TV season. Yeah. That's a recurring motif.
2: So mm-hmm. all of the all of the creatures and things, you know, even the castle on the lizard inside, the the people at the party, all of that is just material from the universe that he's just basically changing form of to create whatever he wants out of it, but he doesn't have any way to create more of anything. Right, it's like Plato to him, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Trying to understand how his minions are now capable of successful rebellion, even though he is not willing it.
3: He well, because he's only willed them into being. He doesn't. He he has willed them into being, and he's used his energy to create them. But once he's done so, if he's created them from a particular template that would have allowed for independent thought it can get away from him and i think that's that may actually be a function of his just having run out of energy he doesn't even have the energy to control them anymore he can just manifest them which is why all those creatures end up committing suicide in front of uh, harry they're just very happy to be released because it's like oh yay whoopee we're we're finally free we're going yeah. to oblivion, it's a quick? But no
0: free. but then it's finally over Yes. Well, I, think I, I feel like I'm on the verge of getting this because it's supposed to be very important that this is the doctor's fear. And we get two different ways of what is the doctor's fear. So he says, unending fury and hatred. Mm-hmm. But it also seems to be a fear that I wondered if underneath that was a, an idea that his friends would turn on him and hate him because Scratch's minions are turning on him and hate and hate him
3: now. I don't think
0: no nah, a... no not entirely but then we go back because there's there's the, the the doctor's fear that he says he's unleashed in the moment and then he goes back to what he fears later on in his final statement to the time lords so he says at that time what he fears is fury and hatred and i thought the idea was basically he thinks of all his enemies coming at him at once mm-hmm. and that's what he's unleashed on scratchman yeah i'm sorry it sounds like i'm being pedantic and joyless about this but i think it's really interesting Perhaps I fear the monsters, perhaps I fear losing my friends, perhaps I fear not being the doctor. They liked that a little more. Perhaps I fear doing this alone. That was a little closer to the truth. I'm just a gal- uh, I cannot say this. Galimaufry from Gallifrey? Doing my shambolic best against impossible odds, and there's you lot watching from the pavilion. You could... help they act, reacted to this with fury. So going back to he says at the time that he fears the fury and the hatred is what he does to scratch. First of all, you know, perhaps I fear the monsters. He sends the monsters. Perhaps I fear losing my friends. Scratch doesn't have any friends. Perhaps I fear not being the doctor. Scratch is no longer the king of hell or whatever position, his position, official title is, the chairman of the board, yes. I love his board so
1: much. <laughs> Perhaps I
0: fear doing this alone, and Scratch is in that way alone, because even his board evaporates at the end his yes-men. So I wondered if that's what was being manifested. Maybe hmm. I'm reading in more than there, is there?
3: Well, my idea, and don't, maybe you'll agree with this too, is that in chapter 30, you get the sense that the Doctor fears giving up and letting the universe be overrun by the monsters.
0: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens to Scratchman's universe is his universe is overrun by the monsters.
3: Yes, and in fact one of the last things Scratch says is he can't endure this, no man could, and one of the ersatz doctors says, no one has but you're not him, and neither are we. Yeah. It's like, yeah that that's it. He does do it. Not just the one thing. In fact, I think that's why the chapter headings for the um, framing story are all about different fears. Because the Doctor has all of them. He fears all of these things. He's got plenty of fears. He fears not being relevant. He fears not being him. He fears hatred in the universe. He fears not being able to save the universe. He fears losing his friends. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And it's uh interesting Breakdown that he also fears, and they did mention it the great secret of his past, which they do not talk about because even the fake previous selves won't reveal what his big secret is. <laughs> so he's afraid of that being revealed, but that's never going to be revealed, obviously. We will never know, nor should we. But yeah, it's a lot to unpack. <laughs> What else did we like? What were some of the littler bits that we liked, or the bigger bits?
2: I loved how they kept coming back to Scratch Man having expressions on this Good. this face that's expressionless. <laughs> the image in my head is kind of like that Magritte painting with the man yes. with the apple face. it's ah, uh, nice. It, it, it doesn't have any form really, you know, Scratch Man's head is it's light, but it still emotes in ways that the that the characters pick up on and, and still you get the feeling of what he's saying and 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 what he's going through, even if he is just a ball of light.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> There's some yeah. great descriptions in here that are ver- very simple but very evocative about expressions for like the doctor describing himself my voice sank into a sepulcher and then later I plugged another (laughs) bulb into my smile yes great (laughs) great descriptions of expressions even though I didn't even think about Dalton like how how much we visualize this expressionless face (laughs) being so expressive and don't question it at all yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) the zero nun smiled like a haunted tree I have no idea what that looks like and yet it totally worked (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Are we supposed to know what a 0 nun is?
3: No, and we will never get it again. That's fine. Like I said, James Goss has come up with his own version of the Time Lords for this, and they kind of resemble the actual Time Lords as they've come to be, but they also resemble the Time Lords that we get to see in the books from the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s. Yeah, there's a version of the Time Lords for every single decade, and I think this is the latest iteration.
2: I'm I'm sitting here laughing to myself. The whole bit about the pinball situation—it um, <laughs> reminded me <laughs> of Ghostbusters. Yes, when when Zool tells them to choose their, you know, yes, choose their yes. fate, choose their destiny, choose choose their undoing, and stay Puff Marshmallow Man and stuff. <laughs> you know, just just from the simple thought, you know, clear your mind. Oh shit, I thought about. <laughs> I thought about this thing that is so innocuous and silly, but it's gonna kill us. Yes. Yeah, the idea that a pinball is just like pops into Harry's head. And, <laughs> and they have to keep telling him to stop thinking because he keeps thinking about other games, which <laughs> then make this weird <laughs> amalgam of some nightmare, you know, situation. And then the signs that keep popping up that are just harry's polite you know phrases <laughs> it's like oh dear and, oh that's not right <laughs> it's the best harry we've ever seen it's so absurd and it's so well done and it's totally the kind of thing that a devious person like scratchman it's totally there what what would be someone's undoing you know mm-hmm. this this silly little thing like pinball <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> yes. It's, his whole, it's his whole persona the whole time Towers are nice, said Harry to himself, sadly, because Sarah Jane said something like, I know you just want to go up at the tower. <laughs> You're not looking right. for supplies, you just want to run up the stairs.
3: Towers are nice. <laughs> I think it's dangled by the McClaw machine.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes, they, uh, uh, there's a description of the lights. They say it's like polite black pool. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's perfect. It's perfect. Totally is
3: it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's also so very late seventies too, uh, because we know that Sarah is supposed to be from nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. But
0: yeah, you all know, that garish neon when it's not the cutting edge thing anymore, like it was in the fifties.
3: Exactly, and it's uh, she mentions Scratchman's Domain as being very disco. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs>
3: lit upstairs. Uh, right. It's just, yeah, because pinball would have been the big thing around the time that this movie would have been made. Really a sign of its times, but it also ages really nicely because we get all of the stuff. Oh, that's something I wanted to ask you about. What you thought of some of the stuff from now that was incorporated into it. Now, obviously, we've talked about the 13th Doctor and the 10th Doctor being in there, but when Sarah is chased into the Jigsaw Room by the Scarecrow, in the TARDIS. And we find out that that Jigsaw Room is specifically a Time Lord device meant to predict possible futures so that they can you know, when they land on a planet they don't accidentally fuck things up. But it's never worked properly because nothing in the TARDIS does. She sees her future. And we get flashes of her leaving the TARDIS, her first appearance in the new series which is School Reunion. We get flashes of the sarah jane adventures but we don't see the end because of course we shouldn't how did those touches work for you
2: i i thought it was really well done i i did feel like the doctor even tells sarah like i hope i hope you didn't look to the end and she says i didn't look too far yeah it's a question in and of itself if you could see your future if you could see what is going to happen to you would you
1: Mm -hmm. and it
2: brings up this you know moral question of should you know what happens yeah.
0: And then sort of at the end, diffusing it with the idea that that room's kind of broken anyway. So it doesn't actually, <laughs> t- well, it doesn't take all of the factors into account that it ought to, but it I, it, I thought it was a very good impression of what it might be like to see your future, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. And you're not sure what proportions you're seeing.
2: Yeah.
0: create that feathering out effect?
2: Yeah. Yeah. and kind of, and how too that when she's down on the actual board, she's only getting pieces She's getting moments of it, but then only when she gets up above to kind of see the bigger picture does it actually make sense as what it is.
3: Which kind of makes sense, doesn't it, as a metaphor? Yeah. The only way you can really see the totality of a life is if you're outside it.
2: Yeah. Which is, it's very poetic, very beautiful, beautifully done. I I really liked that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I love everything about that chapter because it does have so many. It's chapter 12 for those uh, listening at home that she sees a picture taken at Christmas at Unit, but everybody else's faces have been redacted. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we get a glimpse of a character that we will be seeing quite soon. So I'm not going to say anything about it to our panelists, but that's referred to there as well. Allison will remember this because she's seen the last Tom Baker story, so she knows what the cloister bell is all about, and that's what is peeling in the TARDIS because it's being invaded by Scratch. But then she gets up to the bell tower, and it's just a record player like the monk used in uh, the Time Meddler.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you can never Which rely is on those bells around there. Well, an interesting thing about the scarecrow who ends with My Name Was Joanna is. Going back to the fact that we've seen a lot of charming villages, and this is not one of them. Yeah. It was not that sentimental a flashback. It was a flashback of kind of a hard life, but it still had this beauty and dignity that was actually more resonant because it wasn't overly sentimental.
3: Yes. And we do get the sadness of it. In fact, something that is referenced about Sarah's future life, which is a sad moment, is, I don't know if you caught this, one of the rooms in that portion of the TARDIS is a ballroom with an uneaten wedding cake. Yeah, That's also a reference to a Sarah Jane adventure story, in which the Doctor actually appears.
0: Okay, because that could me. I'm like, are they doing a Great Expectations reference? Nope. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's, that's what the I only
3: think.
2: thing I could think about, but...
3: Yeah. And it could be that, too. I mean, it, that's just it. Well, but the, what you're saying makes a lot more sense. But the references are so amorphous in this book that it's very hard to pin them down, and that actually makes them better in yes, some ways. Yes, because
0: she can't pin them down either.
3: Yeah, yeah, precisely.
0: So in that scene, we have, we have several really lovely things the Doctor says to and about Sarah Jane, where before, I, this Doctor seems to be much more... On the one hand, he's very outgoing to the point of being boisterous. On the other hand, he is not as verbally sentimental as we've seen from the third doctor. Right. But she, at one point in the room, says something like, she fears that at some point the doctor's forgotten her. And we have in parentheses, oh, Sarah Jane, I'd never forget you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: we have this interesting thing where the Time Lords are jeering at him for telling us part of the story uh, from the perspective of Harry or or Sarah when he wasn't there for the events. And he has this really interesting bit about how they see time sort of through the peripheral vision and sideways and had this perception of what's going on around as time lords, even when they're not directly observing things, that I I thought was a really once again it's a meta story was written by someone who's been thinking about about the Doctor for 20 to 40 years. I mean that in a good way. Mm-hmm. So just I thought it it kind of felt it's like some way that it was all leading up to that scene. Even though this is only page 99 of, of about 300 pages of. It's an entirely a scene from Sarah's perspective, and then we have this parenthetical of, oh, Sarah Jane, I'd never forget you, that we remember. It's actually all from his perspective, yes. even when he's telling it from Sarah's perspective or Harry's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they really enjoy is making fun of Harry together. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like like so from some Harry's perspective, let's see here. Sarah sat on a fence watching me call Harry an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, you know, Harry's useful in his way. Don't let him hear that. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think the first thing he says about her is, she adored a good question as much as I adored her. And this worked so well from a first-person perspective because it would seem very strange for him to say things like that out loud that would be too sentimental for the persona.
3: Exactly. And there are a couple moments like that in chapter 22, for instance, when he finally finds them again and he rescues them. And Harry says something along the lines of, Well, you took your time. I've been trying to keep up our spirits. And Sarah says, Yes, please get us out of here. And the doctor thinks there had been songs, hadn't there? <laughs> He's been singing. And, and then they start making fun of the situation they're in and he says you're both being facetious I intone solemnly adoring them which is just lovely. You can actually see that it's the Fourth Doctor and it's Tom Baker. But then again, that line has always been kind of amorphous to begin with, because eventually the Fourth Doctor becomes Tom Baker and Tom Baker becomes the Fourth Doctor.
0: And that seems it's to be what's happening. Call back, or call back later, it is, though, in the party. He, on the one hand, he's oblivious. On the other hand, clearly he's not, because that's what he goes back to. His fear is the Doctor calling him an idiot.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And Sarah watching the doctor call him an idiot.
3: Yeah, because he doesn't want to be thought of as useless or stupid, at which he isn't.
0: But he presents himself as not noticing when he they say those things, and he does.
3: Right, because yeah,
0: part does. of his persona is to not notice it at all.
3: Exactly, mm-hmm. and it it's kind of on them too. And this is the way that friendships are, right? That the the people that rag on you the worst are your best friends, and yet. They are the ones you can depend upon the most, and vice versa. And that's essentially what this... This book is very much Tom Baker's love letter to Liz Sladen and Ian Margaret. That's why you get those two postscripts at the end, and one of them is in the voice of Sarah. Which, by the way, is a direct lead-in. It's the beginning of a scene that we will see the tail end of in a future story. We can place that one. We can absolutely place that one. But yeah, the whole thing is just like this love letter to that era of Doctor Who and to the fourth Doctor and to Liz Sladen and Ian Marder. And it works brilliantly on those scores.
0: I guess I assume that Goth wrote all that at the end, but I I don't know. Oh yeah, of course I mean, I mean, the idea that there would be notes from them at the end.
3: I think the final note being from Sarah, in other words, being from Liz Sladen, the final note from ian martyr is the entire book if it hadn't been for ian martyr this book wouldn't have existed Mm. any more than if it hadn't been for tom baker Mm. yeah so there is that
0: (laughs) i think the only note i have from her epilogue partly because it might have been half an hour before we were supposed to start recording you didn't hear that here um is uh, the doctor species couldn't invent a trouser press without it being ominous (laughs) (laughs)
3: exactly and she's absolutely right (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing that the Time Lords do that could ever be anything good. <laughs> oh, my God. Any little things that we liked? Favorite moments so Ages we can wrap them. up. I know, <laughs> because right we time. could go on. We could go on forever and ever about this book.
2: Um, there's there's a couple of mentions of the TARDIS being uh, shy. Yes. And let me find my other note. The The first one is at the beginning. About her being shy, and then the the end, it mentions the TARDIS is terribly sensitive. Whenever they get back into the TARDIS, and the console is made of wicker.
0: Yes. Oh, yes, it's like my aunt's patio.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the doctor just says something like, "Just don't mention it. She's terribly sensitive."
0: Um, <laughs> yes. someone in addition to not liking the uh, it looks like there are so many writers involved here but someone in addition to not really liking the third doctor that much it seemed like uh, really had a, a problem with maybe their aunt who was a landlady <laughs> Right. <laughs> 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 a- aunts and landladies kind of <laughs> get right. beaten with the rhetorical stick here
3: yeah and we never mentioned Sophonisba Oh, I loved, oh, yes. Well, I love
0: Miss Melwitt, yes. Yes. I did not try to pronounce her first name. But it was far over my head, or beyond Brilliant my linguistic ability.
3: And certainly one of those characters that's introduced in a story like this that you think, hey, that character could be a really great companion. And then they die horribly. Yeah, which is very much a new series thing, but it was also done back then as well. Yeah, yeah she would have been great.
0: Well, it also somebody kept it from being a situation of, okay, is this just a. a... <laughs> How many times were we gonna rag on middle-aged women in this book as well? Right. There was a, a counter a counterpoint to uh, all, all the uh, landlady references, but I it's a, I thought the winning line was "It's just I've been told you're breeding super moths." <laughs> just sort of the gentle inquiry.
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this this can't possibly be true, could it? In the In the church,
0: we were told <laughs> it had been built of sobriety and slate.
3: Yes and something else that strikes me i think is brilliant is when the doctor and scratchman finally meet and scratch is saying well we're basically the same you know and the doctor says no we're nothing like each other and scratch says how many gods have you bumped off and that shuts the doctor up for a bit because he's t- just killed sutak for instance <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> oh by the way for for those that may not know this british readers will know this british listeners will know this those of you who may have read this book but have never heard of this before in chapter twenty one one of the things that scratch offers to the doctor is a tease made A TeasMade is a trademark product since the 1950s, a form of it has existed since Victorian times, though. It's an analog alarm clock with a sort of automatic coffee pot attached, only it's for making tea. It's (laughs) meant to be by the bedside so you can have a cup of tea as soon as you wake up. It's a very British device. I
0: was going to say, is that like what they make in Wallace and Gromit?
3: Yes! Yeah, (laughs) same idea.
0: Rube Goldberg version?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the one in Wallace and Gromit ends up being insane. But yeah, this is a very simplified one.
2: (laughs) There's a, a bit whenever the townspeople come back to kind of stop the doctor and he calls them a distraction and Harry says, I'm sorry what happened to you, but it's not fair to blame the doctor. He doesn't forget about people. No, indeed. Sophonisba but indicated the man she was holding so frail he looked little more than a bag of kindling then what's this man's name i looked up my eyes weary Were we introduced in the church in all that madness you've forgotten the man's voice had a dry paper rustle like old tobacco rubbing in a tin your name yes i've forgotten that i admitted but not who you were You stood up for me and lost your life. You helped operate the generator that powered my silly little machine that helped to protect your world. Yes, your world. You fished off those islands all your life in a boat built for you by your father, the last boat he ever built. Every winter you hauled it up into the beach and gave it a fresh coat of green paint while drinking a flask of cold tea and watching by the gulls. I'm truly sorry I can't remember your name. But I can remember everything else about you yeah it it that that just hits, yeah
3: it's definitely an echo of that eleventh doctor story in which we find out everywhere else in the universe the name Doctor is a synonym for lawyer because of the doctor, yeah, and he meets a, a woman who met him as a girl, and she's dying and she says. You don't remember me. Hey, of course I
1: remember. I remember everyone. Hey, we ran, you and me. Didn't we run, Lorna? was she I don't know but she was very brave
3: they're always brave they're always brave there has been so much death in the doctor's life that if he were to remember everything he would never be able to act at all yeah, He would just never be able to function. But he does remember what was lost, and that's the important thing. He may not remember the particulars, but he always remembers what's at stake. And that's the human cost of everything that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, anything else?
2: <laughs> I I just have Cybermen with a big question mark, exclamation point. And then in the very next chapter, right at the beginning, they describe uh, the Cybermen's getting... Dragged into Scratchman's scheme as a cyber pyramid scheme.
1: Yes. Oh, I love <laughs> yes.
0: that. Yes. <laughs> I feel like it's such a switch between 70s who and modern who is from book one to book two of, oh, it's, it's going to be a Cybermen story. No, it is not going to be a Cybermen story. We're going to go into something <laughs> completely different from something that can be defeated by super moths to a whole yes. different plane <laughs> of meta story.
3: Yeah, exactly, and and we get previews of what's to come, such as finding out that the people on Gallifrey have very long names, like Pralamanda, uh, Lady Pralamanda. Ah, oh, shit. Pra, what a name! Pralamanda. <laughs> oh wait, I got it. Lady Pralamanda Varvar. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna get a character with a name like that quite soon. <laughs> Because they seem to like that sort of sesquipedalian name on Gallifrey for some reason. Yes. God. No wonder we don't know the doctor's real name because it probably goes on for chapters.
0: <laughs> like a prince or something. <laughs> yes, exactly.
3: There there are tons here. You're right. We could go on for hours with every single good line. There is.
0: Accent sharp as mustard and just as strong. You could pickle herrings with it.
3: Oh, yes. <laughs> I rarely got to see the monsters having fun. <laughs>
0: well, a nice character moment here of, once again, it's the doctor's perspective of dressed with careful carelessness in my usual tumble of velvet, tweed, and corduroy. I've, uh, <laughs> I have heard the linguistics of the southeastern United States described as studied nonchalance before and it's always a phrase that struck me the same similar careful carelessness of tumble yes
3: and one of my favorite lines in the book booing has never been invented on gallifrey because we don't have opera or rail replacement buses we've never had the need
1: <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> and having been on a rail <laughs> replacement bus i wish i had thought to boo it at the time but i was after re- it wasn't the driver's fault
3: The worst you'll get from us is a cough or a silence so cold you could keep milk fresh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A couple of nice friendship moments here. If we're so busy being shot at and transmogrified, we never get the chance for a little doze. And then later on, that comfortable silence that occasionally falls between friends who are often locked up in dungeons together. Yes. Yes. And this experience of waiting for the end of the world being similar to waiting for a bus and having waited for the bus a lot and a few times the end of the world, it, it is similar in its way. Yes.
3: The idea that Sarah once forced the doctor to take the tube. Yeah. <laughs> now,
0: my, my only complaint about uh, Harry's characterization was uh, the line, uh, because overall I thought it was fantastic and very enjoyable, uh, but you're going to make me do something heroic, aren't you? But we are told from the very beginning that Harry reads, quote, too many lurid novels. I mean, from the beginning of his appearances. So my objection is <laughs> Harry absolutely always wants to do something heroic and can't wait to. <laughs> so.
3: Yes, but at this point in his travels with the Doctor and Sarah, he already knows the dangers of doing those heroic right, yes. things. So maybe that's it. It does seem kind of odd if that comes after uh, Loch Ness Monster, though, because we saw Harry really coming into his own in that one. But yeah, he's had some time to be away from it for a little bit and probably decompress.
0: Well, there's such enjoyable linguistic comedy in this, but then such effective dark moments as well that I thought the best example of that transition is uh, the Doctor Says of, of Mavis. A woman used to pricing things by the pound. She'd worked out my exact value and considered it very low. (laughs) And then, the next thing is, she leads the decision to turn him over to the Scarecrows. And he says, I've been in a lot of rooms where a terrible decision is made. It hovers and swoops through the air, at first unthinkable, unspeakable, and then it lands.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You can tell, can't you, that, in fact, this is going to be spoiling something for you but james goss those books that we're going to be reading of his that are later novelizations books that were not novelized under the target imprint are in fact of douglas adams stories written for doctor who it's got a very douglas adams-esque feel to it
0: which is what i thought about the Barry Letts that we read as well
3: Mm, except not as successful at it i think Yes. Through? Yes. Yeah. No, no. I was, I was yeah. thinking
0: about that. <laughs> Barry Lutz went kind of nuts with it at, at, at some points, where I think he's the one I refer to as being sort of a bowl of salt and pepper. Like the elements he used to sort of spice up the story were so overpowering at times, and I think this this book has a lot more restraint.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree.
0: To the point where I I feel ashamed at how artless my descriptions are of it.
3: And you still get lines like, that would be like a ham sandwich running towards a Labrador.
0: <laughs> I think my favorite dad joke in this was the invitation extended itself. Well, we're told about an invitation that's literally a sort of a, a drawbridge. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh. Uh.
0: And uh, I have a friend you'd get on with like a mouse on fire.
3: Yes. And what I think is probably one of the best transitions ever in chapter two, the old farmer is talking to Harry and saying, "Don't go into the barn." And the very next line is, "In the barn." In the barn. Yes. Yes.
0: Oh my goodness! There are some masterpieces of pagination in here as well. When they where the page breaks, I, I decided I shouldn't take start taking photographs in here, but I think one of there's like just the last sentence on the page is, "And it's the devil." Comes <laughs> to the next scene. So.
3: Oh, absolutely.
0: So what did you think about the temptation of the Doctor, the ultimate temptation? I'll let you be this Doctor forever. You like being the others, but you loved being you.
3: That is something that would appeal to the Doctor.
0: I thought it was a thesis
3: of the whole book. I think it's right, because if you think about it, that's what all of us go through. This is the one incarnation that we get, as far as we know, whereas the Doctor knows what it's like to have enjoyed being that Doctor and can't do it again which is why you get that lovely moment of the 13th doctor saying oh yeah i've wanted to try the scarf because she never wore it
0: i thought you were saying it was what all doctor who fans went through wishing all the other doctors would be tom baker i'm like ah, well that's there's uh, that, too you it could be a majority a simple majority but
3: there's yeah. that too and i think i think that's why you get the 10th doctor coming in as where he does Because there is that feeling that if Tom Baker could have been the doctor forever, that would have been glorious. But of course, there has to be change.
0: Well, And why I kind of resisted reading the Tom Baker books, because I feel overwhelmed by the massive worshipful fandom of Tom Baker, where we have sort of the triumvirate of what all he brings to the performance. Plus, he was a doctor for so long. Plus, for so many Americans, he's the first doctor who sort of imprinted on them as a child.
3: Yeah, well... You once brought up the fact that you weren't sure that you were seeing what was appealing about the fourth Doctor through the books. Well, I was trying to quit
0: specifically, and you wouldn't let me.
3: Well, yeah, (laughs) but I think it's mostly because a lot of that comes through in the performance, and that's hard even for somebody like Terrence Dix to capture in prose. This prose captures the experience of seeing the Doctor on screen. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, and to be clear to anyone who is angry at me right now i wasn't saying i didn't understand the appeal of performance i'm saying i've seen a limited amount of the performance i understand that's the appeal i just haven't seen as much of that
3: well now you kind of (laughs) have
1: yeah oh yeah i
0: feel i don't know if i really have but i certainly feel like i have
3: yeah imagine that the doctor that you're seeing in this book is the doctor that we've been reading for the last you know half dozen books
0: for all the third doctor light disses Uh, i love the part about a deal with the devil I'm imagining the master's face right now. He'd just die of jealousy. <laughs> Poor lamb That's yes. actually a great shout out to the third doctor. Oh, God, yes. he'd be so envious. <laughs> exactly.
2: Also from that same
0: scene, now I, uh, I know what a football rattle is. Oh, and a lich gate and a coppice gate. I learned all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Stopping Absolutely. to Google.
3: <laughs> and a tease made.
0: <laughs> I was kind of afraid to Google that one.
3: That's fine. <laughs> I did it for you.
0: Oh, then, you're not selling me on your eschatology.
3: <laughs> no, no, of course Nothing not. So, shall we go to Goodreads?
0: Uh, I would like to have a brief appreciation for the lizard. I oh. Every time I'm being melodramatic uh, from here on out about being very tired or kind of having an allergy attack, I'm just going to swoon and say, sweet Morpheus, take me. <laughs> Imagine myself <laughs> as a lizard in a smoking jacket.
3: <laughs> I had some difficulty with Mr. Temple, but I think that's because I didn't realize at the first time I was reading it what he was there for. <laughs> and I realized, oh, the doctor can't stand being bored and ignored at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's what that particular torture is is especially when there's ginger beer to be had yes which again places this after android invasion you, you naysayers <laughs> that's the only place this book could go
2: <laughs> we've covered a lot of what i have i have two that i i would like to mention Cybermen weakness is guilt
0: yes I shall never perform an act like this again (laughs) after he saves the the companions
2: and then the other one is very early in the book I think it's in the probably the second little section where the doctor is talking to the time lords I'll just read the little part Um, you have the vantage point of all of history nothing is unknown to you you can appreciate the universe in all its individual moments of splendor and yet you don't Everything out there is all the same to you. You have made eternity into a pate. I love that. (laughs) Just, I think that That was also in my notes. (laughs) Yeah. Such a wonderful burn (laughs) of the Time Lords. Basically, yeah, like you have so much power and so much ability to enjoy everything out in the world, and yet you sit here on your little planet and don't enjoy anything.
3: (laughs) Yes. And condense it to the most bland form possible. Or yeah. that they
0: are in some ways afraid of participating in anything, which is not entirely what we've seen of Time Lords before, but works True. in this context.
3: Yeah. Well, bear in mind that the Time Lords have their own version of the Deep State that, as we will find out, there is a very interventionist version of the Time Lords, mm-hmm. and then there are the Time Lords that are basically trying the Doctor for interfering. Yeah. Yeah. They don't tend to talk to each other very much.
0: It's an example of what I think Goss does really well is he glosses over things in ways that I absolutely accept. Out of the corner of my mind, I could see Mavis Tillich. I don't need to scrutinize that further. That's enough to communicate the concept. There are a lot of things he does elegantly like that that are actually very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And the sort of thing that Terrence Sticks struggles with because he tries to come up with explanations or gloss things over, but we always notice it doesn't hold together or make sense internally. And here, there are things I've gone on too much about where I didn't entirely understood how they make sense. But I did have an impression that they did make sense. I just didn't get it. And that's challenging to do. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, bear in mind that James Goss probably studied at the knee of Terrence Dix, metaphorically.
0: Well, and I don't mean that as a a Terrence Dix slam. I'm saying it's something Terrence Dix found challenging to do because it's very challenging to do, very difficult to do.
3: Right. But when you've been reading all of an author's works, as we will have ended up doing by the time we're done with this podcast, we'll know the ins and outs of Dick's and what his strengths are <laughs> and what his weaknesses are. Yeah, I know. I, I didn't realize what I was saying there. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. We, we already know what his strengths and weaknesses are. So if you get somebody like James Goss, who's been thinking about Doctor Who for a while, and has read all of Dix's works. We have an author who knows what needs to be done. In fact, that's generally true, not always true, but generally true of a lot of the more contemporary Doctor Who authors who But not just have checking boxes.
0: I mean it it soars and for, for yeah sort of thing that it is for yeah. both. Yes, it is an entertainment adventure novel. It looks like it has horror overtones from the outside. There's a kind of a limited amount of that, but I thought it was magnificent the way it dealt with the sort of the meta of the decades of actors involved and writers involved and how the themes have developed and how it spoke to the 70s versus now in a way that could have been extraordinarily pretentious, but was actually felt very natural. Okay. In a way that's challenging to make that fine natural. It seemed natural.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, shall we go to Goodreads and Not see what I they thought of it? Not read one quote.
0: Okay. <laughs> I am in trouble. It's the last, last name description of Harry Sullivan. There was no malice in him. Instead, an urge to grin at everything until it grinned back. Yes. If I may be forgiven, now we may go to
3: Goodreads. Okay. As we always do, sometimes under duress, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud out here the average rating for this book on goodreads out of five stars is a whopping 4.02 that is the highest single rating we have ever seen in this podcast the reviews from our goodreads group have again been edited for length sorry everyone but keep them coming in our goodreads group damon reviews the audiobook and gives it a 4.5 saying i love this audiobook Okay, it's not going to win any awards, but it kept me entertained the way that it incorporated the other doctors was clever. I don't mind admitting that the end extras about Harry and Sarah may have even caused me to shed a little tear. Yeah, me too. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it four stars and says, I found this book difficult to begin with, possibly because I'd become accustomed to reading novelizations of stories I was already well acquainted with. It's been a while since I've read any new Doctor Who. By the time I'd reached the second chapter, however, I was immersed in the story. I can't help wondering how much of the book was written by Tom Baker, whose name alone appears on the cover, and how much was written by his co-author James Goss. Anyone who's read Baker's autobiography knows he writes absurdly well. But Goss does a passable impression of Douglas Adams' writing, and there's some lines that could be either, such as, "...a suicidally miserable carpet." which combines the slightly distasteful absurdity of Baker with the absurd economy of words of Adams, and therefore Goss. It was Chapter 18 that this book really got going for me, as it became more familiar. First, there was a conversation with Charon, the cab driver, which reminded me of a story often told by Baker. Yeah, I forgot to tell you guys this. At the end of his tenure on Doctor Who, his hair had already started to go gray, and shortly after he left, he got it cut. When he got into a black cab, the driver recognized him as Doctor Who, which pleased Baker until the driver added, you were always my favorite, Mr. Pertwee. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Yes, maybe Baker included the story so he could correct the ending. (laughs) That's wonderful. It really is. <laughs> One aspect of the story that made me reluctant to read it was, in all the reports I'd read, the adversary was the real devil. Fortunately, despite this assertion being made a few times, including by the Doctor, there's enough room to dismiss the supernatural to delay such concerns. The three main characters are treated well, though I initially thought Harry was being portrayed too much as a buffoon. He gets to be heroic, though, so it's all balanced out nicely. I'm glad this book was chosen for the podcast, as I might never have gotten around to reading it otherwise, and that would have been a shame, as I thoroughly enjoyed it. And finally, just to show that you can't please everyone, Ian Hepburn gives it two stars, and says decidedly mediocre and shallow, with an ending that struggles to translate what would have at least been an interesting cinematic ending into a proper print climax. The shoehorning of New Who nods and winks into it also hampers the tone, making it a 70s prog album with backing vocals by the Spice Girls. Disappointing.
0: Sorry oh, wow. that it failed climax
3: for you there, sir. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this one?
2: I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this one... I'm gonna go four point seven five. I there's very little. I can't even think of anything I don't like, but I don't think it anything's perfect. Yeah, it just it it was a delight to read. It was dark, but it was funny. It was uplifting. It really got the characters in a in a way that that very few of the books that we've read have yeah this one this one was so much fun and i probably will read it again a lot of the the target books that we've read i i haven't really thought about much after reading them but this one is something that definitely is going to stick with me for a little while yeah it it makes me want to read more kind of in this vein i don't know if anything like that exists so yeah they
3: do But not for this particular combination of Doctor and Companions. Allison, how about you?
0: To sort of twist and torture a phrase in the book, it will continue to prowl around the cat flap in my mind. So (laughs) it's the same thing as Dalton. Most of these books, I don't recall later and... The ones that I do find myself thinking about later, I wish I'd increased my score because they have some bits about them that really stuck with me. And this one, sometimes I think they'll stick with me and they don't at all. Maybe this will be the same, but I really expect this one to stick with me. And it's it's everything I want in this genre of novel. Um, the The, the guy who gave it two stars, that's perfectly fine if he didn't enjoy it, but... It also seemed like he just kind of, he picked up a a book with a logo on it. (laughs) There are certain (laughs) expectations that come with that. It is a licensed property. And yet this is exactly what I want in a licensed property, which sounds like a cynical expression. But I, I feel like this really gets at what people love about the story. And you could read this as a standalone with a couple of brief explanations from a friend, and you would still, I think, get a lot of the takeaways of the Doctors. I mean, if the, you would still understand what's resonant about the Doctors' uh, conversations with the Time Lords and the concept of always running. And when I repeat them, they sound trite, but they, they work really well in the moment and uh look at line here we don't need the doctor for everything but it helps so uh (laughs) we don't need the doctor for a story like this but it helps because we do have history with these characters and make the the themes that much more resonant so i'm gonna go uh since dalton and i are the companions of tony (laughs) witt i'm going to match my companion and go 4.75 which is by far my highest ever Uh It uh, joins Colony and Space at the top of my list of things that we've read. And I love Colony and Space.
3: (laughs) That is high praise. And I am going to make this a momentous moment for this podcast. This is the first time we have ever agreed on a rating, the three of us. (laughs) I am also giving it a 4.75 for the exact same reasons that you listed. But also because this book, more than anything else, just makes me yearn for more Fourth Doctor Sarah Harry stories. It reminds me just how brief that interaction between Tom Baker and Liz Slayton and Ian Martyr was, and that it will never come again this is a love note to that entire era of the show when Baker was arguably at his most happy in the part because as we know, the further he got along, even though the Doctor seemed to become more and more Tom Baker Tom Baker was becoming less and less interested in playing the Doctor at this point, when he made the story with Ian Martyr, he was happy, he was very happy being the fourth Doctor and he loved Liz Sladen and Ian Martyr to pieces and you can see it through the fourth doctor loving sarah and harry to pieces and that's why i love this book to pieces there are some things and i will admit having the 13th doctor in there is kind of odd and it's not going to age too terribly well (laughs) and there are any number of other doctors that could have been in there it's a bit like that moment in the 50th anniversary special an adventure in space and time in which William Hartnell looks across the console room as he's filming his last episode and he sees Matt Smith there and it's kind of like, uh, really? Uh, but it's still a sweet moment. And there aren't many flaws like that in this book. It comes very close to being just the pinnacle <laughs> of Doctor Who books. God, I can't believe I made that pun at the end. So, Cutting yeah. could it. Could not help it. 4.75. Well... Thank you all. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we will be joined once more by Jenny Ingersoll for our discussion of Terence Dix novelization of Robert Holmes' rewrite of Dix's own script for The Brain of Morbius. Yes, that is every bit as complicated as it sounds. <laughs> Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. <laughs> yes, exactly. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no space faces also feel free to follow us on twitter we're at dw target bc or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice including spotify if all else fails you and inevitably will email me directly at emperor at gmail.com with target book club in the subject line so i don't ignore it thank you very much for listening stay safe and enjoy your travels Bye-bye. bye bye bye